Chapter Twelve of In Kent with Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. In Kent with Charles Dickens by Thomas Frost. Chapter Twelve. On the following morning, after breakfasting at the old post office inn in the High Street of Ramsgate, where I had passed the night, I walked down to the beach. With the intention of sauntering to Broadstairs in the shade of the cliffs, as Dickens had done more than thirty years previously. I walked, he says in a letter, on the sands at low water to Ramsgate, and sat upon them till flayed with cold. That was in September, when the air is sometimes very cold before noon and in the evening. And the wind and waves so rough that on one occasion I could scarcely stand up against the former on the east cliff at Dover, and the latter beat so fiercely against the jetty that the spray was blown over my head. On the present occasion, the sun was shining brightly and the air was pleasantly warm. Elderly gentlemen and stout ladies occupied the chairs on the sands, contemplatively watching the smoke of distant steamers. Young ladies were promenading in morning dress, with their back hair let down to dry. Frolicsome girls and boys were riding donkeys, one of which seemed to be gravely amused by the little feminine screams which he contrived to extract from his rider by persistently walking close to the water line reached by the tide. And younger children were busily constructing what looked like miniature earthworks and trenches in the sand. Dickens, though he visited this part of the coast every summer for fourteen or fifteen years, never chose Ramsgate for a resort, and seems to have visited it from Broadstairs on only two occasions, one of which has been mentioned. Eight years later, he again visited Ramsgate, but only for the purpose of seeing a circus entertainment, of which popular form of amusement he was very fond. Though for a writer who appears to have seen so much of the manners and habits of strolling entertainers of every description, his knowledge of circus life was strangely limited. When the interesting story of the fortunes and misfortunes of the Gradgrinds and the Bounderbys appeared, the incidents in which various members of Sleary's Circus Company figure excited surprise equally among those who were conversant with circus life. And those who knew nothing about it, the former that he should know so little, and the latter that he should know, as they thought, so much. By way of explanation of the novelist's supposed knowledge of the habits, manners, and language of circus men, it was said that he had acquired it by obtaining the entree to the arena at Astley's at the forenoon hours, which riders, acrobats, and gymnasts devote to practising the feats by which they win the applause of the spectators at night. There seems to have been no foundation for this statement, and a letter which has been published in which Dickens asked for a hint as to places where the desired knowledge of circus manners and language could be gathered. Does not appear, if we may judge from the results exhibited in the story which he was then planning, to have been very successful. Several years after the publication of that work, I was staying for a few days at the White Horse Micklegate in the city of York, having a sitting room in common with the ringmaster, the head vaulter and revolving globe performer, 
and two of the gymnasts, of a circus then located for the summer season in a permanent building on St. George's Field. One afternoon, when rain confined me to the house, I was reading the story, while the gymnasts were amusing themselves with the globe performer's props, one of the brace juggling with four brass balls, while the other balanced a sword on its point on a forefinger. "'Have you read this book?' I asked one of them. "'Some of it,' he replied, with his eyes on the rapidly revolving brass balls. "'What do you think of it?' "'Rot!' Such was the circus man's monosyllabic and emphatic condemnation of the story, which probably applied, however, only to the professional matters pertaining to Sleary's circus. "'Look here,' he said, dropping the balls into his pockets, and himself upon a chair by the table at which I was sitting. "'There's a bit about Sleary's company which shows how much the writer knows about circuses.' He turned over the leaves for a few moments, and read the following passage. All the fathers could dance upon rolling casks, stand upon bottles, catch knives and balls, twirl hand-basins, ride upon anything, jump over everything, and stick at nothing. All the mothers could, and did, dance upon the slack wire and the tightrope, and perform rapid acts on barebacked steeds. "'Sleary's people must have been exceptionally clever,' I observed. "'I should think so,' he rejoined ironically. "'There are not many clowns and acrobats who can ride at all, "'and just as few riders who can do the balancing and juggling business. "'Alf Burgess is a rare exception. "'As for lady riders, out of a score who can ride a pad-horse "'and fly through hoops and balloons and over banners and garters, I don't suppose you would find three who can do a rapid act on the bare back of a horse. Each performer has his or her particular line of business, I suppose. Just so. You might just as well talk of Charles Matthews acting Hamlet. And as to all the mothers riding and doing the slack wire and the tightrope, there are more often none who can do anything in the show at all. Why, in our show there are eight married men— and not one of their wives ever appears in the ring, or ever has done. I ascertained afterwards that the ringmaster's wife was an actress, and had at that time an engagement in London. One of the gymnasts had left his wife in Manchester, and one of a brace of acrobatic brothers had left his in the metropolis. The other brother, another acrobat, and the three clowns had their wives with them, but the only one connected with the circus was an elderly woman, the wife of one of the clowns, who was money-taker at the gallery entrance. There were five equestriennes, but they were all members of the proprietor's family. "'Look here again,' continued the gymnast, turning to another part of the story. "'Sleary's company seems to be a rather strong one, and most of the men have wives and children all with them and yet the whole of them, Sleary and his family and all, are represented as lodging at one house, a little pub in the outskirts of the town. They must have been like sheep in the pens of a cattle market. I never heard of such a thing. Why, there is more of us here than in any other house in the city. 
I may add that the proprietor and his family had, in this instance, apartments over one of the best shops in York. These, however, are matters which, while they render it of little value as a picture of circus life and character, do not diminish the interest of the story, which many consider one of Dickens's best works, and which the episode of Stephen Blackpool alone would entitle to a place amongst standard works of fiction. The acrobats and minstrels who give their entertainments on the sands and the cliffs had not made their appearance, when I turned my back upon the harbour and the bathing machines, and went northward, according to the compass, though my path lay in the shadow of what is called the East Cliff. It lay over a level beach, where patches of moist sand alternated with flat protrusions of chalk, garnished with tufts of dark, ribbon-like marine algae, with many little pools and narrow channels in which tiny crabs had been belated by the receding tide. On my left rose the high and perpendicular cliff, on my right stretched the sea, looking like an immense sheet of corrugated green glass. Broadstairs reached, I left the beach near the little harbour, and looked about the favourite seaside resort of the inimitable Boz. The only discoverable reason for which preference seems to have been its comparative quietness, which enabled him to work. For a period of fifteen years he came here nearly every summer. In 1837, when he was writing the Pickwick Papers, he lodged at number 12 in the High Street, which, though not very long, shows a mixture of shops and private houses, most of which have their first floors devoted to the reception of summer visitors. In 1840 he was here twice in June and September, staying on both occasions at Lawn House, a villa on the Kingsgate Road, occupied with the pathetic story of little Nell and her grandfather, which, aided as its effect is by such original creations as Dick Swiveller and Quilp the Dwarf, is, in my opinion, the most highly finished work he ever wrote. In the following year he came down in August, shifting his quarters to Fort House in the same pleasant neighbourhood. Next year he came down a month earlier, when he attended Thanet races, of which he wrote, I saw, oh, who shall say what an amount of character in the way of inconceivable villainy and blackguardism. I even got some new wrinkles in the way of showmen, conjurers, pea-and-thimble men, and trampers generally. These races are held on elevated park-like land, on the right of the road from Margate to Acle, and seem to attract large assemblages of the motley character usually found attending such amusements. I saw the scene from the distant and dusty road on one occasion, but though the reviewer of an evening journal assumed, at a later date, that I was in the habit of wandering from fair to fair, conversing with acrobats and showmen, I left its noise and blackguardism behind me, and strolled on to Acle. Though Broadstairs is even now quieter than Margate, duller than Ramsgate, Dickens found it thirty years ago a less desirable summer retreat for a hard-working literary man than it had been a dozen years previously, 
he complained of brass bands and organ-grinders, and, while pondering in his mind the story of David Copperfield, often talked of shifting his quarters to Dover, Folkestone, or Sandgate. Eventually he went to the Isle of Wight, but found the climate too enervating. And, after considering the relative advantages of Ramsgate and Herne Bay, returned to Broadstairs. His last visit to the latter place was made in 1851, when he was sketching the outlines of the story of Bleak House. I left the town by York Gate, an ancient flint-built arch, furnished in the olden time with a portcullis and gates, which have long since disappeared. A pleasant walk it is along the breezy road over the green ridge, on which the lighthouse stands, to warn the mariner from that bold promontory, the North Foreland, the dread of Cockney voyagers, many of whom land at Margate to avoid it, while others, after duly laughing at their fears and qualms, leave the deck when the pitching of the vessel and the driving of the spray over the foredeck warn them of their approach to it. Here, if there is a gale anywhere along the coast, it rages with the greatest violence, and the waves beat more fiercely against the lofty cliffs. Leaving the lighthouse behind, I descended the slope of the green ridge on which it stands, and soon saw the white walls and towers of Kingsgate Castle rising out of the trees which surround them on the land side, and cutting the clear blue sky. The picturesque hamlet in their neighbourhood is named from the circumstance of Charles the Second and his brother, then Duke of York, having once landed there, at a gap in the cliff, over which a brick arch has been constructed, and which is now used for launching the local lifeboat. A steep path, a little more to the southward, leads from the hamlet to the beach the latter portion of the descent being facilitated by the construction of a rude flight of steps cut in the chalk. Descending these, I found a man loading a cart with seaweed, which is much used on land near the coast as a manure, on account of the soda and potash it contains. With this exception, and that of a solitary nursemaid and two or three children, there was no one on the beach though Kingsgate struck me as a more desirable site for a new marine resort than the locality which has since become Westgate-on-Sea. The accommodation afforded by the Admiral Digby, a public house on the cliff, causes it to be made the terminal point of many rambles from Margate. The cliff between this point and Margate is much more broken than is observable farther south, Lofty and solid as is the range of chalky heights, its seaward face has evidently receded before the waves, which, in tempestuous weather, are driven with tremendous force against the base of the cliff. The results of this sapping action are seen in deep recesses, with their sandy bottoms strewn with seaweed and detached masses of chalk, round which the tide flows at high water, but which are left standing for the present, to show where the face of the cliff was once. Two of the most remarkable of these isolated masses have, I am informed, been removed since my last visit to obtain a site for the Margate Aquarium. At one point a broken projection of the cliff stretches out across the beach, 
leaving only a narrow passage round its extremity at low water, and none when the flood-tide beats against the steep white wall from which it juts out. The sight of it, as I approached it on this occasion, reminded me of an adventure which had befallen me at that point a few years previously. I was walking along the beach towards Kingsgate, and had calculated when starting from Margate that I could reach that place before the tide flowed up to the cliff. I had walked about half the distance, without the advance of the briny influx creating in my mind any suspicion of the accuracy of my estimate, when I met an elderly gentleman walking very fast, with his trousers turned up to his knees, revealing a pair of bare legs and feet. "'The tide is coming in very fast,' said he, scarcely pausing to give me the warning. "'You had better turn back, or you may not be able even to wade through it as I have done.' "'I think I can reach Kingsgate,' I rejoined, with careless confidence in my ability to accomplish what I had undertaken. "'If you will take my advice, you will turn up at the next gap,' the stranger looked over his shoulder to call to me, as he hurried in the opposite direction. I looked at the advancing tide, and then at the cliff, and accelerated my pace. It would be no joke, I thought, to be caught between them. I could not swim, and scaling that almost perpendicular wall of chalk was simply impracticable, except for an insect. The tide was coming up so fast that it soon became necessary for me to keep close to the cliff, where the irregular masses of broken chalk, strewn with seaweed, made walking more difficult than on the sand. My confidence underwent very slight diminution, however, until I approached the little promontory which has been described. The extremity of the nest, which has evidently been worn down by the operation of the waves, was under water, and the tide reached within a few feet of the cliff. By wading into the water I might reach a point where it might be practicable to clamber over it, but the slipperiness of the green film of minute vegetation which covered it was suggestive of the peril of a slip and a fall into the water, perhaps with a broken leg to prevent me from getting out again. There was no time for deliberation, however, and my perception of the necessity of instant action prompted me to step upon the rock and from one ledge to another until I was three or four feet above the beach. As I did so, I discovered at about the same height, but nearer to the cliff, what seemed to be one of the recesses which the waves have scooped in the chalk, and which are so numerous along the coast between Kingsgate and Westgate. There is one into which a fissure from the surface opens, and another where the fissure has been enlarged and extended until it affords a passage by a rough and steep ascent to the top of the cliff. Impelled by the thought that here might be a means of escape from what I was beginning to regard as a perilous dilemma, I scrambled towards the opening, which I found extended some distance parallel with the line of cliff, but curved in a manner which prevented me from seeing the end of it. It was just wide enough to admit one person, but barely five feet from the sandy bottom to the wave-worn crown, so that I had to penetrate it in a stooping posture. In a few moments I saw the light at its southern end, from which I scrambled down to the beach. 
Then I began to run, now splashing through the tide, now bounding from one half-submerged mass of chalk to another, until I reached the next gap. Margate Jetty soon became near enough for the harbour pier to be discernible between the black piles, and, leaving the beach near the towering pinnacles of chalk, which had had the name of No Man's Land conferred upon them, I proceeded to the high street in quest of a dinner. Though the end of the season was approaching, the continuance of bright pleasant weather warned me of the desirability of securing a lodging before the next steamer from London discharged its living cargo on the jetty to wander through the streets, carpet-bag in hand, with anxious faces seeking a resting-place. It is a standing joke, which the regular frequenters of the place play upon unsophisticated passengers, that they will have to sleep in a bathing-machine, all the lodgings being occupied and though almost every other house in the town is a lodging-house, I have seen scores of tired and famishing visitors tramping about the streets far into the night, seeking from house to house anything in the shape of sleeping accommodation, perhaps to be told by some jocular letter of lodgings, as I actually heard said at Ramsgate, that the doormat was at their service. Though never tired of wandering over the cliffs or along sandy beaches, seaside towns are, of all forms of brick-and-mortar agglomeration, my special aversion. I gladly leave to the mass of summer visitors the delights which they seem to find in basking in the broiling sun on Ramsgate Sands, or the East Cliff at Margate, while I stroll away from the town to seaweedy solitudes— or the seclusion and greenery of the inland byways. I had no sooner dined, therefore, than I tramped away to the sequestered hamlet of Acle, whence, after a rest and a glass of Cobb's ale at the Crown and Sceptre, I strolled across the fields to Birchington. Evening found me returning to Margate along the beach, with the cliff towering up on my right hand, red in the slanting rays of the setting sun, grey in the shadows, and a long stretch of flat masses of chalk on my left, intersected with narrow channels, and clothed with moist bunches of dusky green ribbon-like seaweeds, varied here and there with fringe-like tufts of pink and white. Here the channels of water lay in shadow, there they caught and reflected the rich tints of the sun-dyed clouds. Beyond, the sea spread out like a trembling sheet of gold. End of chapter 12